It seems that we really struggle with tax reform in Australia. You know, why is it that tax reform is so difficult to do in Australia? Why do we struggle with tax reform in Australia? You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 143 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. Over the next four episodes, we will talk about our tax system in Australia. Today's question is, why we seem to be unable to reform our tax system in any meaningful way. I asked Chris Evans, a well-known tax professor at UNSW in Sydney, for his insights. So probably to begin to think about why tax reform in Australia is so hard, we need to think about what we mean by tax reform. And I think we often get a little bit confused about this because tax reform isn't tax cuts. Tax cuts is just giving us back what we shouldn't have lost in the first place. It's just bracket creep, dealing with inflation, those sorts of things. So I tend to think of tax reform as being something more fundamental than that. I think of tax reform as as being a non-trivial change to the tax system. It could be like we had in 2000, the introduction of a, a GST, a goods and services tax. It could be changes to the way that we tax. It could be changes to the tax mix, all those sorts of things. So that's what I tend to think of as tax reform. But I think it's also important to think about what we mean by successful tax reform, because there's lots of changes, but they're not necessarily successful. So again, I think it's important to think about how we measure successful tax reform. And the way I would go about it would be by saying, first of all, did this reform achieve what the reformers intended it to achieve? So with the introduction of the goods and services tax all those years ago, did they successfully implement the tax and did it achieve the objectives they had in terms of changing the tax mix in Australia? I think the answer to that would probably be yes. The second thing, is it sustainable? Does it last? Is the reform just here today, gone tomorrow? Or, or is it there over a long period of time? And again, with the GST, pretty obviously, yes, it was successful on that count. And then the third one is, does it have any undesirable side effects? Did it lead to unintended consequences? And I think we probably appreciate that with something like the GST, which is the last big tax reform I can think of in Australia, it probably did have unintended consequences, although a lot of those I think were noticed in a, before it all happened. So probably if you looked at that sort of major type of tax reform like the GST, you'd say that was successful. But it's interesting that we, I don't think, have had much successful tax reform since the introduction of the GST. And, and it'd be interesting to know why that's the case. Why is tax reform in Australia so hard? And I think the answer to that starts with the fact that it's hard everywhere. It's not just Australia. But Australia's got a few unique circumstances which make it more difficult to implement tax reform than in other countries. One of them is the very short parliamentary period. We only have three-year periods, whereas most other countries have four, some like the UK have five. So the length of the parliamentary period makes it very difficult to introduce tax reform and particularly successful tax reform. And I think another factor that you'd have to think about in the Australian context 
is the fact that we have an upper chamber, which is, put it bluntly, quite obstructionist. It's very difficult to get tax reform through the Senate. If you compare, for example, Australia with New Zealand, and New Zealand's only got the one chamber of parliament, not the two, the New Zealanders tend to be much more successful at tax reform than we do. So that's certainly another reason. But I think, above all, it's the fact that and one of my former mentors in tax, Professor Yuri Gerbich, always used to say this, that tax is politics with a dollar sign in front. It's all about the political. Um, you can see both the reasons I gave for the lack of good tax reform in Australia were about the politics. And it's very, very difficult to remove the politics from taxation. Tax is politics. We saw it most recently in the federal election. One party was putting up some major tax reforms. It became incredibly politicised and it became very, very difficult as a result for those reforms to have any chance of succeeding. And what we're left with instead is just a simple mantra of, well, let's have a few more tax cuts. We're not going to do anything fundamental about our tax system. And yet, some of those changes that were being proposed would have probably been in useful improvements to the tax system. Certainly, if I think of negative gearing, for example, Australia is one of very, very few countries in the world that offers anything like negative gearing. From a rational point of view, it would have been very sensible to have reformed our negative gearing rules. From a political point of view, it was clearly a no-go area and it's not going to happen. So what can you do about it? That's, that's always the, the, uh, the million-dollar question, the $64 million question. And naively, I'd like to suggest, well, can we depoliticize it somewhat? Can we get some of the politics out of tax and tax reform. And that's very difficult. But if you think about it, we've done it with monetary policy. So the government is no longer the fixer of interest rates. We leave that to the Reserve Bank of Australia. And many countries around the world do exactly that. Monetary policy, which is one of the two major levers in terms of macroeconomic policy, is left is not left in the hands of the politicians. It's, it's taken to independent experts. So perhaps my argument would be, can we do the same with fiscal policy, the other major lever? Could we take some aspects of fiscal policy, and particularly tax reform, away from the politicians, who are obviously always interested in you know, their own constituencies and pushing their own views, and put it into hand of independent experts. Sounds a little anti-democratic in the sense that suddenly the elected representatives of the people are no longer dealing with tax reform and, and tax policy generally. But it might not be as daft as it sounds. There might be some aspects of it which would make sense. And certainly some countries are beginning to explore the prospect of taking certain aspects of fiscal policy away from the politicians so that it can be dealt with on a more rational, fundamental basis rather than leaving it to the sort of the loudest shouters or the uh, the most popular policies. Which countries? Um, so the UK has been exploring it a little bit and in the Scandinavian countries they've been looking at the possibility that, that certain, certain aspects, not all of it, but certain aspects. The idea would be that you leave the broad framework, the broad parameter, in the hands of the politicians. So the politicians would go to the electorate and would say, look, we think... 
Australia should become a higher taxing country, a lower taxing country, whatever they think. We think the tax mix in Australia, in other words, the types of tax we use, aren't appropriate for Australia and we want to see these sorts of changes. So they would agree the the broad framework and if they were elected that would be the broad framework that would be given to what we might call this independent fiscal authority. And then the independent fiscal authority would say okay you've determined that you don't want tax to be more than 24% of GDP or you don't want this current focus on indirect taxes, you prefer more direct taxes or you prefer environmental taxes or whatever it is, given that framework, these are the policies we suggest. So those would then go back to the government and hopefully would be picked up and run with by the government um, in terms of implementation of tax reform and taking them to the next election. But I certainly think, you know, as we saw with, with negative gearing and the franking credits and everything like that and all the debate that went around it, it wasn't a rational debate. It was a debate which was really a lowest common denominator debate. So perhaps that's where we need to be rethinking. So it's fairly naive, it's idealistic, it's a little bit outrageous in terms of suggesting that tax be removed from the political framework, but it's perhaps the only way we're going to get good, sensible tax reform in the long term. So that's my thoughts on that. <laughs> I don't know. But if we come back to what's been happening in Australia over the last 40 or 50 years, you can see that there's not been a lot of sensible tax reform. We had the Asprey Committee in 1975, and a lot of its ideas were picked up in 1985 with the reform of the Australian tax system and very sensible reform at that stage. When, when was the actual Asprey reform? Asprey was 75. It was a, a reform committee, or it was a committee chaired by a, a judge, which was looking into tax reform in Australia. So it took 10 years. So it took 10 years for that to, to translate into some sort of reality. Then you had another bout of tax reform at the end of the 20th century when... Well, first of all, the major one was the GST, but also around about the same time you had the Ralph Review of Business Taxation, which was probably the worst example of a review into tax reform that you could possibly have because it was three big end-of-town business people set up to effectively make proposals which were picked up and implemented which benefited the big end of town. I mean, I'll make no bones about that. It was not sensible tax reform. It was very political tax reform. And then you had the Henry Review in 2009, 2010, which made some very, very sensible suggestions for tax reform. But unfortunately, the government botched it. The government only picked up one of their recommendations, which was the one for the mineral resource rent tax, ran with that, forgot the other 148 recommendations virtually in their entirety, um, and then obviously Rudd lost his job to Gillard as a result of the mineral resource rent tax, and ultimately none of the major tax proposals from Henry have been implemented. They're still there. They're sitting on the table. It might be a little bit like Asprey. It'll take another 10 or 15 years before we suddenly realise that some of those other changes made a lot of sense in terms of changing our tax structure and tax base and so on. But at the moment, it's very unlikely that any of them would get through. What were the main suggestions in the so, review? Uh, apart from 
on the mineral resource rent tax, it wanted to see a sort of shift away from our over-reliance on the personal income tax and the corporate income tax and towards other pillars of taxation, including more taxation of the GST, so long as the regressive aspects of the GST were compensated for with the population. It looked at a lot of environmental taxes and it looked at a lot of sort of cleaning up of some of the messes within our existing taxes. So, for example, negative gearing was something that it suggested should not be there. The FBT provisions, which can be incredibly complex, and that, that's one of the major problems with our tax system at the moment. We sort of we want it to be equitable, to be fair, we want it to be efficient, and we want it to be simple. And simplicity, I'm afraid, tends to lose out to equity, but more so to efficiency. And so sometimes we have a tax system which is reasonably equitable, sometimes we have a tax system which is reasonably efficient, but we never have a tax system which is simple. Its complexity is, is, I think, one of its major problems. And certainly if I was looking at tax reform, it would be in the area of how can we begin to move towards a simplification of the existing tax system? How can we manage the complexity? Because that's what it's about. We'll never have a simple tax system, but we can have a less complex tax system or we can manage the complexity in better ways than we do at the moment. So just very quickly, yeah. you, you just mentioned the regressive character of GST. Yes. Can you... Okay. Okay. So tax like the goods and services tax is regressive because it falls disproportionately on those least able to afford it. The higher your income, the lesser the impact of the GST. So if you think about a millionaire or a billionaire and you think about a pauper, both have got to buy a loaf of bread to eat. For the pauper, that constitutes a very large proportion of that pauper's income. For the billionaire, it might be a very small proportion of her income. So you've, the regressive means it bears disproportionately on those least able to pay. Okay, yeah. If the pauper spends $11 a week, then they pay $1 of GST. Yeah. If the um, rich person pays a... spends $1.1 $1. a week, then this pay $100,000 yes. of GST. So, so, so in absolute 10%. terms, in absolute terms, it impacts on the person who spends more of their money more. But in relative terms, it impacts very adversely on the person with less money. And it's particularly the case the person with lots of money not just consumes, but also saves. Whereas the person with very little money only consumes. So you see that relatively the burden falls upon those with lower income. You mentioned various reasons why tax reform is so hard, but you mentioned three I wanted to ask you about. Mm -hmm. The first one you mentioned is that our parliamentary period is so short, yeah. only three years. Is there any talk of extending no. that? I mean, in a dream world, it would be nice to think about fixed four-year periods like the United States have, or even five-year periods like the UK, but there's no talk. And constitutionally, that's extremely unlikely, very unlikely to see any change to the length of period. I think we're stuck with that. Then the second reason you gave was that our Senate is 
obstructionist. So obstructionist. But that very much depends on elections, doesn't yeah. it? It depends on who is in the Senate. That's right. And when I think of politics, even though the heat, I think, in Australia has increased over the years, I think the talk is much tougher in politics now than it was mm -hmm. in the last century. But I still think if we compare Australia to the UK or the US, I think as a society we are less divided. I think there is less hate talk between the two sides than okay. the US and I think the UK is particularly divided at the moment around Brexit. Yeah. So when you look at that, I think we are more homo homogenous, homogenous yeah. society. Hence, I would think that it would be harder in the US or the UK to push tax reform through than in Australia. Okay. The difference is in the UK, the House of Lords is really just a talking shop. It has no power to block okay. or very little power to block. And if it does block, then it goes back and it It can block a couple of times, but it can't block after that. In the United States, again, it's the, the separation of powers makes it quite difficult to drive tax reform through unless there is a sort of political culture which is supporting it. But if you've got a Congress which is ide ideologically opposed to the president, and we've seen that recently, getting those tax cuts through can be very... or tax reform. I made the mistake there of thinking tax cuts are tax reform. But, but getting tax reform through can be very, very difficult. It was managed by Trump at the end of 2017, but really only under threat of withholding funding for other programs which Congress wanted to see funded. So there was a bit of a trade-off happening there. I mean, certainly you can look at the UK and you look at the USA and you can see them as both being very polarised at the moment. There's no doubt about it. But I think Australia's got an element of that. But also Australia's got an element in its Senate where the elected representatives there, the state representatives in the Senate, quite often take it upon themselves to protect sectional interests, so the interests of, for example, their state, Tasmania or Western Australia, whatever, above the national interest. And that makes it very difficult to get federal tax reform through. And one other point I didn't mention about, you know, why is it so hard and the politics of tax reform? And I think that's Australia also has a very strong federal state divide. The impasse between the states on the one hand and, and the feds on the other makes it quite often very difficult. GST was an example where it all worked, but it only worked because John Howard, the then prime minister, said that all the money from the GST could go to the states. They were therefore all very willing to get on board and to see a GST introduced. The interesting thing is now, We haven't changed the rate of GST, and probably it ought to have been changed. 10% is relatively low by international standards, and we derive relatively less of our total revenue from tax from an indirect tax like the GST than other countries do. So it's, it's quite a... a Uh, how would you call it, a small hitter at the moment. It could be a larger hitter. But it's going to be very difficult because of the fiscal relationships between the centre and the states to actually get an increase in the GST rate. Effectively, it's not quite as simple as this, but they all have to sign off on it. And it's very unlikely that all the states, together with The, the federal government would all agree to an increase in the GST at the same time. Some of them will be in favour at some times, others will be in favour at other times, but it tends to follow political lines. If you've got a couple of non-coalition states and a coalition central 
federal government, it's quite likely that those non-coalition states will oppose an increase in the GST because they'll look very popular in their own home states as a result of that. So we're unlikely to see an increase in the GST. Um, we're sort of trapped in a, a fiscal stalemate between federal and state authorities. At the moment, the entire GST income goes to the state. Pretty well, apart from a very, very small little administrative take from the federal government. So if we ever increase it, let's say, for example, to 17% mm-hmm. or similar as it is in some European yeah. countries... If we increased it to seven, if we increased it full stop, is there talk that then a higher percentage would go to the federal? No, I think it the way that it's set up, state. it would always go to the states to fund their infrastructure programs and so on. And in place of the block grants that were coming from the federal government down to the states as well. More GST would be collected, would, more money would go to the uh, states. Yes. But for that, the federal government then would have to pay less money for big... In grants. But it would also mean that if the take from the indirect tax, the GST, went up, relatively the take from the personal income tax... Would have to come down. Corporate ...would probably come down. And that's the money under the control of the federal government. So the federal government is never going to... There's sort of certain entrenched positions which will stop them making too many changes on that sort of thing. So that's another blockage to tax reform in, in Australia. It's that sort of constitutional arrangement between the states and the federal government, yeah. You mentioned that the Senate is obstructional and tends to bet their, for their own home yeah. state. You have that less than the parliament? So is that specific to the Senate? In the House of Representatives, it is less likely because that's dominated more by the main power blocks, either coalition or ALP or combinations, depending on the circumstances. So it's more confrontational in the House of Reps, but less obstructionist. In the Senate, it's more obstructionist because you have these minor parties who hold the balance of power, who are only going to vote for tax reform if they can see that there is a clear political advantage for them in it, yeah. So it's quite a difficult one. It's quite difficult to get all the stars lined up at the right time in the right place. That's the difficulty. I would think that whoever votes for the House of Representatives for a certain party would also vote for that party in the Senate. But I'm surprised to learn that the power play between Parliament and Senate is so different, that that you have small parties in the Senate that you don't have in the Parliament. Yes, well, more independents in the Senate who hold the balance of power. And it's essentially based upon the notion that each of the states sends a certain number of senators and it's the same number so new south wales with its population and i'd only be hazarding a guess but let's say six seven eight million i'm not quite sure sends the 12 senators to canberra and tasmania with its population of well i don't know one million you know something like that probably less than one million sends 12 senators as well the power of the vote in tasmania is proportionally far greater than the power of the vote in new south wales in Senate terms. And it means that representatives who are, you know, entirely independent of the major parties can be elected there and, and often are elected there and then often seek, as I say, the, to push their own, the interests of their own particular constituency above the national interest. Mm. 
that sounds like a major flaw in the system to me. Shouldn't the number of senators be relative to population so that... Well, arguably it should, but when they put the Constitution together all those years ago, over 100 years ago, the feeling was that these states were coming together to join a national unit and their interests should never and not be overlooked. And so it was set up in such a way that the states would continue to have a considerable amount of power under the Constitution. So every state and territory in Australia, all eight of them, sent the same number of senators? Well, senators. I think the states do. I think the territories send a lower amount, and I have to check that out. I see, but, but, but all states yes, send but all the same amount. The same amount. Yeah. I see. Mm, it's quite an interesting one. So those are the sort of roadblocks to tax reform in Australia. It is because it's political, but it's also because it's never easy to undertake tax reform. I certainly think we've got to think of different ways and something like an independent fiscal authority or something like a standing committee on tax reform, not a parliamentary committee, but a committee composed of people with good expertise in terms of understanding of the impact of tax on the economy. So I would be saying judges, I would be saying high-level academics, I would be saying economists, people who can, um, and I would also say tax administrators, people and representatives from business, people who've got a good understanding of the economy and the way that it works, people from civil society as well, if they could form a committee which was like an ongoing committee looking at proposals for tax reform within the parameters set the framework set for them by the government, I think that might be a better way of making progress than our current stop-start, block, unblock type system of tax reform, which simply most of the time seems to come down to who can give the bigger tax cuts. And that's not the way to operate a society. I mean, we can keep this race to the bottom, giving away all of the tax base and so on, but ultimately that's going to lead to funding crises in schools, in roads, in hospitals, wherever else. We pay the price for that. Um, there are other societies around the world that choose to pay more in tax but receive more back in terms of the services provided. We tend to put ourselves, a bit like the United States and some of the others, at the lower end where we don't want to pay very much over to, to the state and we don't get much back. I'm just not sure that we've got the balance right at the moment. Welcome back. If a tax reform seems to be out of reach, is there a way we can simplify the system? This is the question Chris Evan will cover in the next episode, episode 144. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.